0: Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Mr. Allwood. it is a pleasure to have you back on the show. Would you mind introducing yourself to everyone out there listening again?
1: Yeah, my name is uh, Ed Alwood, and I am a former uh, journalist, former correspondent with CNN, uh, then earned a PhD at University of North Carolina and began teaching. And so this year I've been teaching for 24 years. And I currently teach in the journalism program at the University of Maryland.
0: Can I ask, um, when we talk about certain subjects you've covered, which do you find that really sparks up your interest? Well, I'm really
1: surprised at what sparked up. um, Because uh, later in my career, well, I'd say halfway in my career, I specialized in financial reporting. That's especially interesting in Washington uh, because I got to cover uh, various uh, committees of Congress with taxes and that sort of thing. Uh, I got to cover the Federal Reserve and some very notable people there, Paul Volcker. I got to meet and uh, and interview uh, who uh, is in the history books for sure. So um, what I did was I tried to apply a meaningful video to explain uh, complicated economic policies and and economic news. And uh, I found it uh, very, uh, very enjoyable, to my surprise, because I'm not a money cruncher. But I didn't approach it as a lot of money, because that would just to confuse a lot of people. I approached it more as trying to make sense of what was going on.
0: When we talk about making sense of what's going on, can you give me one of the difficult maybe problems that you would face trying to educate? Are you trying to educate people like myself or are you trying to educate more on just the policies and terms so people can understand them? Because I always hear that even the politicians don't really understand half of the <laughs> bills that get passed.
1: Well, they don't because those bills are, are, are very long and very complicated. If you break them down, it's much easier to digest them. but. Uh, I learned a lot about interest rates because when I was reporting uh, here in Washington for Channel 5, uh, Paul Volcker raised the interest rate to 17 or 18 percent. And of course, that was having quite an effect on the economy and on the public. And uh, there were reasons for it, and there there were very good reasons, and there were reasons we had to go through a, a painful period process. That's not unlike where we are today, but fortunately they haven't had to raise them as high. But uh, when the Fed started raising the rates, I've lost track, two years, three years ago, uh, there was a lot of teeth gnashing at that time. And there always is when rates are raised, but but there are reasons. And the whole idea of the money supply and how they measure the money supply and the effect it has uh, under monetarism of, of Regulating our economy uh, is great. Uh, you know, uh, to, to touch on one thing, we all talk about inflation being, oh, that's horrible, what a horrible, horrible thing. Inflation's eating me up. Inflation's terrible. And then we'll turn around and we'll say, yeah, I want to raise this year. Well, that's inflation. And we'll say, yeah, I want my value of my home to go up. That's inflation. So, it's not that we're all against inflation. We're just in we're we're against higher prices for us, but we love getting a higher salary and more money for our home,
0: but does that not turn into a snake biting its own tail? I mean, if we eventually see prices go up and then we all get raises, let's say minimum wage, I think in this the first of this year, everything went up to fifteen dollars. Most states do fifteen dollars for minimum wage now. I would have to think that, I mean, yeah, that helps balance out how much people are paying for groceries and stuff, but it's already pretty difficult. and I think it's a communication problem. We don't necessarily understand, like you mentioned, understanding more about inflation and what that kind of entails. A lot of people don't see that. They just see what they're buying is not the same price it used to be.
1: Yeah, but what you're pointing out is the complication for the Fed, uh, because, yes, the Fed wants people to make more money in terms of a minimum wage. Uh, And the Fed wants uh, especially elderly people to have uh, a savings account in the value of their home. But they don't want inflation to go so out of control that nobody can afford anything. So that's the fine line they walk. And that's the interesting thing about sitting in their meetings, listening to them discuss this and hearing the different points of view and and then their vote.
0: Did you have any problems with any viewpoints of any specific individuals? You don't have to say names, but maybe it was just the way that they were thinking. Is it a class issue? Would it be based on? I mean, what I don't know if your background comes from I, I would be lower class, maybe lower middle class if there is middle class. But I'm curious if there is more of a voice of the people that are involved in some of these meetings compared to people that might be a little bit disconnected.
1: Yeah, I, I didn't have any problem with it. And I felt that people's voices were represented. And it's not just voices at the table, but it's also the, the numbers they crunch, the statistics that they go to, all sorts of lengths to gather to uh, to try to measure. It's, it's like a doctor uh, taking a temperature of a patient. And uh, I, I found them very serious, and I respected them quite a lot.
0: So how did you end up switching over to journalism and focusing more about communications with media?
1: Well, I was always headed toward journalism, uh, even in uh, grammar school. Uh, I was interested in journalism. And I just watched, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, I just watched the movie Rustin about that. Barrett Rustin, who was the architect of the March on Washington.
0: Okay. And uh,
1: and I think I mentioned to you last time, my, my uh, town that I grew up in, my hometown, excuse me, was uh, Albany, Georgia, which became a target city of of the civil rights movement back in the, the early 60s. And uh, I was a kid of about 12 years old and had nothing to do in the summer. So I would go in and watch the demonstrators uh, downtown in Albany, and it brought national media in. So I watched the media do their jobs. And I think that's where I got the got the bug to go into journalism. But uh, But this movie even mentions, specifically mentions once, Albany, Georgia. And that's the role it played. And and that movie, for me, brought back a lot of memories of, uh, as a kid, watching the Civil Rights Movement unfold in Georgia.
0: What are are your thoughts on the counterculture movement? It was kind of like an alternative form, but very popularized back then, of a form of media.
1: Uh, Yeah. And and, uh, did some very, very interesting things. And the uh, anti-war movement certainly had their own newspapers the and the, and the uh, African American newspapers. Uh, and it was uh, interesting to see uh, talking about a division, uh, there's much more of a division about the news coverage back then than there, about the, the, the civil rights movement than anything to do with the economy.
0: Can I ask because you cover one area, but it's about the Cold War and the press. Could you give me a breakdown of your understanding of the Cold War in the press? I have a fascination for it only because it seems like the 60s and 70s. Maybe I was just born in the wrong generation. I know people toss that out a lot. But looking back at it, I find it so fascinating. But also the fact that a lot of this information that we know about that time period, at least some background events that were going on, were explained back then. But a lot of that information came out later, 10, 15 years later, about what was really going on.
1: Well, it was uh, essentially a, a diplomatic chess game. And uh, everyone involved knew it was a chess game. But uh, but that's how uh, international affairs, part of how international affairs were conducted. But the Cold War was uh, a non-fighting war. And it was more of a war of information. And um, it wasn't just uh, stealing secrets and passing around secrets uh which certainly involves information but it was also even public information and a a battle for uh public opinion and so the soviets for instance were were trying to uh find a soft spot in america's heart uh, and america was trying to find a soft spot in the soviets heart so to speak with the uh, public opinion but also there was uh there was a spying that's going on, which makes it a tremendously uh, dramatic period of time. There's a thumbnail. I, I hope that was clear.
0: Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask, what would what you say would be the most effective form of press back then? I mean, would you mention like the newspapers? I mean, voices like Walter Cronkite. It seems like there's a lot more individual characters. I would say that caused people to connect with. I think that's what made Walter Cronkite so prominent was the fact that he kind of had a more of an emotional response than a lot of the stuff that was getting displayed back then.
1: Well, that's true. And that was a big part of the Cold War. And that was the Vietnam War, which was a hot war uh, rather than exactly a Cold War. But but the two kind of exist simultaneously. Um, For people today, young people especially, it's difficult to imagine what media was like back in that era, because today there's so much media and so much to choose from. Uh, But back then there were essentially three major TV networks. Um, And in most towns there was uh, one or two local newspapers. And for uh, information on Vietnam and that sort of thing, a local newspaper in a small town in Iowa or any small town, couldn't send a reporter to Vietnam. So the papers relied on the Associated Press, and the Associated Press goes back to the the Telegraph days, actually. But the Associated Press, from its inception, knew that it had to supply news to papers of all stripes, papers that were editorially conservative and editorially liberal. So the Associated Press invented the idea of Uh, down the middle of the road, non-sensational, non-biased, objective news. And by objective, what we mean by that is fairly uh, sourcing information, trying to tell more than one side of a story, and uh, being very, very careful with adjectives. So... uh, During that era that that you're talking about, there were were very few outlets. Therefore, much of the nation uh, turned to those outlets, which gave them a lot of power in being able to supply information. And coupled with that, so to a certain degree, power to influence opinion, Now, I'm not saying that CBS, NBC, ABC, New York Times, Washington Post were trying to opinionate the nation because they wanted readers, very much like the Associated Press wanted subscribers, of uh, every political leaning. Because the more readers they would have, the more they could charge for ads, the more money they could make. So their, their goal really was... Not to 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 inform people, not but not to offend them. And um, yes, the, the papers did carry the uh, U.S. foreign policy line, uh, but that's not necessarily because they they felt that that was a, a better argument than the Soviets had or the the Vietnamese had. It was because uh, that was. The line that our government was putting out and we elect our government. So we as voters needed to know what our government was doing, what policy it was carrying out and how it was carrying it out. But the other part of it is that uh, newspapers walk a fine line, too, and that they they don't want to offend the readers and they want to find a way to inform them, even inform them of information they don't, the, pop, the public doesn't agree with. Uh, but in a way that doesn't offend them and drive them away, because the media, all of them, are businesses. Uh, Unless you look at something like uh, NPR uh, or public broadcasting, they're not a business in the same way. But still, they have to be able to appeal to donors. So you don't want to offend your donors.
0: Is it better to have an establishment or a media source that's funded by the government or an institution, or better to have it funded by donors?
1: Well, that's debated uh, now, uh, even more than ever. Uh, wondering if the, the route to go in the future for better, uh, more reliable news coverage, wondering if the route to go is not uh, that nonprofit route. Uh, there are pluses and minuses for both. But I think uh, many people would agree that uh, the uh, editorial standards of in PBS are uh, very, very, very high. And um, they I have not seen them accused of uh, waffling uh, to be able to woo a donor. Uh, it's just the potential is there. But I haven't seen that happen. So I don't know. We'll see. We may see in the future, uh, may see soon, whether uh, nonprofit journalism is is preferable over over what, what we have today.
0: What about the consensus amongst the American public? I mean, did you find that it was a lot more easier back in the day? because with all these just basic news outlets compared to the massive amount we have today, I would feel like a lot of people would be amongst the same opinion. I mean, it's kind of like if we use the example of like the Pentagon Papers. Everyone kind of had doubts about the... Uh, You know what was going on in Vietnam, and then they were only confirmed when these papers were leaked to the press. I mean, good on Ellsberg for releasing those, but also good on the media for stepping up and accepting that and publishing that, because I hadn't seen really any criticism of the government before. I mean, besides an article here about a director or something like that, but that was a turning point in the country that really shaped a lot of events like Watergate and things that followed after.
1: You know, um, I think one of the big things that separates that era from this era is um, by having fewer media, uh, big media, back then, there was sort of a level playing field among the public understanding of of what was happening. Not that they all agree on it, but an understanding. For instance, let's go back to the colonial era when uh, there were there were very few newspapers, and the newspapers that we had were all partisan press. They were all connected with a political party. And the way people understood what was happening was they would go to the town square, and uh, they would have discussions. They'd sit on benches. They would uh, have a discussion, and, and they all had a, an understanding of the basic facts and then had a discussion about their opinions about the facts. Well, on that public square, there was limited uh, source of information, so it was easy to have a level playing field. Well, then when you got to uh, the electronic era and the and the penny press era, uh, there was still a few, com- compared to today, media outlets, so you again had pretty general understanding from coast to coast of the facts of what was happening, such as the Pentagon Papers, such as the Vietnam War. But today, it's so fractured, uh, and there's so many different sources, and it's so hard to know which source to trust uh, and which source is expressing facts versus opinion. That we've had a breakdown in the national, national understanding of uh, what the discussion is all about, so that's made it much, much more complicated.
0: Can I ask how how do you feel about political biases in press reporting? It seems like back, I mean, back then, at least from what I'm looking at from the '60s and '70s, I mean, it wasn't as clear. I mean, maybe you could tell back then if you lived and got to experience it, but it's so apparent to me now. When I look at different media reporting and journalism, that you can easily point out a political bias, whether they're Republican, Democrat, whatever side that fits your narrative, you can choose. And it makes it very difficult to get on a consensus of things. So you see events differently.
1: Yeah, but what do you use to to see that bias?
0: Probably your own bias.
1: No, no. I mean, I mean, as you see the news, read the news, what is it in the news that triggers you to feel that there is a bias
0: typically when they really keep hammering the other party as much, when they start going this right, like in one sentence, they'll say the word right wing 15 times. And then in one sentence on the other network, they'll say the word left leftist 15 times where I'm like, well, they're obviously not on that side. They're kind of just poking a jab at the other one, which makes it the whole media reporting in general, where you lose the essence of the story.
1: Yeah. Um, the thing is, I'm not sure I, I, I have, well, the Republican party would not argue with them being called conservative. Uh, The democratic party would not argue with being called liberal, except that liberal has been given such a bad, bad name, bad rap, the word. Um, So there are labels that the parties do subscribe to. And uh, so it's, it, it's perfectly acceptable for the media to use those labels. Um, the other thing is when a candidate criticizes another candidate, um, and the media quotes that candidate's criticism, that doesn't mean the media agrees with it. Uh, that doesn't mean that uh, they they've chosen it just because of those words. It means that we as voters need to understand. That Ted Cruz may be using a certain word to describe uh, his opponent that doesn't point to a bias of the media, so we have an awkward we're in an awkward position of of trying to communicate and not just spew out uh, sterile facts but communicate in a way that's interesting or people are going to tune out and say, that's boring, I'm not going to, especially today, because so much is connected to uh, entertainment. Um, and I wonder sometimes, uh, if if the news organizations have fallen prey to the entertainment side, rather than the informing side. Uh, and and I think that plays to what you're saying, too. I, if I see a bias, it's a bias toward trying to too hard to entertain people and not as hard to inform them.
0: That's uh, very, very true. It's kind of like radio. It's like a dying art. I mean, you can still listen to radio in your car, but with all these different services and our devices now, it kind of eliminated a lot of an avenue for radio.
1: Well, there is, and I, uh, I copied this from somebody, but I used it in, in one of my classes, and that is I took uh, some, a clip from the presidential debates. And you pick the debate. It, it could be the Trump uh, Clinton debate or it could be the Nikki Haley uh, debate that just uh, just happened. DeSantis just happened. Uh, but I, I would pick a clip of uh, of them scoring a point and then edit it next to a uh, professional wrestling match throwing the other wrestler on the on the the, the the floor of the of the riser. And then go back to another clip from the debate. And then another clip from the wrestling match, and and you get the point. It's it's the same type of atmosphere at the debates now that we have with professional wrestling matches, and it's apparently it's quite uh, to to a large degree stirring up the same type of emotion
0: in in people who watch. I would say we don't we never had that back in the day, but then I have to remember the William F. Buckley debate where he says the funniest thing to me, which is, I'll sock you so hard, you'll stay plastered. I've never heard of that in my entire life, but someone needs to put that on a shirt. But it was just that debate that they had, where obviously two people kind of lost their cool, and you saw the gotcha politics, and that's everything that we see today. Is everything is like that? Not maybe a remark or a threat like that, but it's always a gotcha politic type jab at the other candidate. Like my candidate doesn't know what he's talking about because he has whatever. Insert whatever here, and somehow we feed off that. And it was interesting for me to watch those old clips back then because I'm like, hey, it's not that different. But then there's so much of that culture that was extremely different about the press that is not is, is unmatchable today, where I wonder where it went wrong. I mean, do you think it was like a, an event that we had in our history that just altered the course? Do you think it's the 24-hour news cycle?
1: Oh, no. Uh, well, let me say one thing before I go to that, and that is some of the jabs could even be very polite jabs. And I'm thinking of the time that uh, Ronald Reagan said, well, there you go again. And yeah. and nobody's going to ignore that, and and uh, the press knows that, and they're going to quote it. Now that doesn't mean they're biased toward Reagan, or even biased against uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, but uh, it, it is a jab. And I don't know this. This may be my own bias, but I think a lot of people go to a stock car race. To uh, wait on a crash.
0: That's. I think that's pretty true.
1: And and the same thing happens with the debates now. People are going to to wait uh, wait on a crash. Uh, you asked the about the uh, uh, increase in it, and and I think it's because of competitiveness. Um. I mean, for instance. Let's say that Fox News is, uh, I'll pick them because they're carrying so many of the debates. Fox News is competing with with other outlets such as uh, BuzzFeed um, or even a very conservative uh, online media. So because of that type of of competition, uh, they need those wrecks on the stock car racing track uh, to hold on to people. They, I would imagine that the executives of the networks are just sitting and clapping every time there's a jab like yeah. that. Um, but the research shows that those types of things turn the audience into cynics. And that's that's what we're seeing.
0: Have you ever looked at, like, from a historical standpoint, any major events and seen when... Maybe there was a difference in the time, like when something shifted, like at Watergate for instance, I think was a big watershed moment for a lot of people. But there's plenty of other examples you could probably point at through history that had some type of impact that were largely affected. I mean, I would consider an example that wasn't known for the longest time, but it was the use of the intelligence services using journalists. in various different areas whether it was overseas that was exposed by the church committee and even domestically as well too i mean it brings up a big question for me ethically about press freedoms but i, I don't know how long that had been going on for and i don't know if there was any other events that could even match that i'm sure there had to be
1: well the using journalist uh, part is an interesting example because uh the only way we know about that is uh, william colby was testifying, the uh, head of the CIA was testifying and uh, gave his what's been called the dirty laundry talk uh, on the Hill. And so we know the information you just mentioned, but we don't know very many details. And uh, in my research and and dealing with uh, some journalists that I suspected were on the CIA payroll, I've tried to get their. Files from the CIA under the Freedom Information Act, and I can't. Uh, one in particular, I can get everything but one page <laughs> uh, from his files, and uh, so I thought that maybe I could link up with the power of a, a U.S. senator. So I went to a, a senator and uh, explained what I was doing, and he requested the file, and they won't give it to him.
0: <laughs> so there you are um when when did you become aware of that though because i had to i just like i said since the last time we talked i've been doing a deep dive into the church committee and other areas of the 60s and 70s right now i'm focused largely on uh nixon's uh short time in office or five years uh but i'm curious were you able to really capture it earlier i don't mean i don't know when the records essentially came available i'm guessing a little bit after watergate when the church committee was out there um but William Colby, you, that was a great example. I mean, what are your thoughts on government having that power to influence journalists? I mean, we know they blocked some literature books as well too with writers.
1: Well, um, in this case in particular, it, it it takes two to tango, and it wasn't just the CIA wanting to use journalists. It was it was journalists uh, wanting to do something in a patriotic way. Um, but the irony there, and I may have mentioned this to you last time, is the way we practice journalism in this country and, and a lot of countries is uh, uh, if you're a reporter and you're doing a story on uh, uh,
0: the Pentagon deciding to use a, uh,
1: uh, a landing field near your home for drones, You're a local reporter, and you're going to do a story about, hey, wow, the Defense Department's going to use local airstrip for drones. In fact, it may mean more jobs for our area. It may be more income, et cetera, et cetera. So the way you cover the story is you go to the Pentagon, and you interview him, and then you go to the local mayor, and you interview local mayor. And you probably tell the mayor something that was said at the Pentagon to get his reaction to it. Well, that's fine in our country, and we we accept that as a a normal way of doing journalism. But in other countries, such as the Soviet Union uh, and uh, Eastern Europe during the Cold War era, that can easily be seen as espionage, because what you're doing as a journalist is uh, taking information you were given, that's government information, and giving the information to someone else. And so the idea of spying in that era, uh, you have to look at the definition of spying very carefully and see if it's the definition used in the West or definition used in the East. And that makes it especially complicated. Um, The the question that you raise is journalists who accepted money uh, from the CIA in exchange for information like that. or Maybe the CIA arranged for the journalist to, uh, under the cover of being a journalist, to be able to interview someone in in a foreign capital, for instance, and then bring the information back. That's the questionable and and ethically questionable activity. And that's what I wanted to find out, because one journalist in particular that I I, uh, researched was accused of being a spy. And uh, the CIA wouldn't uh, wouldn't that's that's one of the ones I requested information on. They've never given the information about it.
0: Why were you concerned, or were you thinking he was a spy? Because the
1: uh, the the communist government of Czechoslovakia had in, arrested him on espionage charges and put him in prison. And I wanted to know as a researcher in journalism whether he was just doing his regular job as a journalist, for instance, interviewing people, or if he was on the, the payroll of the CIA.
0: Did you ever feel like it was a bit of paranoia at the time? I mean, with that fear of communism that was out there, it seemed like it was There's a lot of propaganda that was getting tossed in the mix, whether it was with the film industry, or whether it was with media, um, from both sides. Not just, nobody's not at fault here. But when you really examine it, I mean, the paranoia, people are hiding under their desks thinking that was going to stop a nuclear bomb from going off. Like that's a, that's a disconnected feeling than what my generation has to deal with today.
1: Well, uh, an almost foolproof way of motivating people is to scare them. And uh, I think I mentioned this last time too. Advertisers know this. And all I have to do is scare you into thinking your deodorant hasn't worked today uh, to get you to use a more powerful deodorant. Or to tell you that your teeth look really yellow, that would scare you because you don't want people looking at you seeing yellow teeth, and that will help prompt you to use a more powerful toothpaste. And so the same thing has been true in the McCarthy era. And that is, if you want to, uh, for instance, get votes, scare people into thinking, we're not safe. And I, as a candidate, have a plan to make us safer. So that's a lot of what propelled the McCarthy era. Um, and and Joe McCarthy in particular. And one of the architects of that was uh, Roy Cohn, his, his lawyer, who would carry his water on that. Now... That's not unlike some of the tactics we've seen under Donald Trump. Um, and he's quite aware that in order to scare, but well, I'll give you an example. Um, and I'm not saying I agree or disagree with uh, with his claim, but one of his claims was that we were under attack because of the immigration issue. And that's one of the ways he sold the idea of the wall was to scare people to believe that without that wall, we were not safe. And that may or may not have been true, but but the tactic works, and it's a tactic that uh, that he copied, really, from the McCarthy era and from Roy Cohn. He, he had been quoted once as saying, where's my Roy Cohn? He's aware of this.
0: What did the McCarthy era really do? impact i mean i know they were influenced in film as well too i mean they pumped out propaganda films really i mean the red scare and then there was like a second red scare that started happening but there was a lot of conditions and restrictions on certain industries like the press and like um, hollywood that were adjusted because of mccarthyism
1: well he went after anybody who was seen as an enemy and that means anybody who was opposed to it, which is also a parallel with the the trump era Uh, so mccarthy was against any Anybody who spoke badly of him, for instance. So uh, he went after government employees big time uh, and accusing them of being communist. He uh, went after the State Department claimed that they had allowed uh, communist books in libraries, in embassies in other countries. So he got them fired. Um, he went uh, against... Uh, People in labor unions claiming that they were uh, banding together to cripple the country in case we were attacked, Um, went against teachers, who else can I think of? And you're right, Hollywood was a very big one. But that got a lot of publicity because because those were big names. I mean, McCarthy going after a, a labor group wasn't going to get as much publicity as uh, McCarthy going after a Hollywood star. And people could relate to that even more.
0: When I mentioned independent writers earlier, uh, uh, there are some things like, Law I think it's Los Angeles Times and Washington Post, New York Post that ended up picking up like you're coming. Cro- I'm coming across things in the archives that are old, just clippings from headlines and stories about writers, spe- specifically in the JFK stuff. But There's a lot of stuff that even talked about with like Carl Bernstein, Bernstein I might be saying his name wrong, but with Mark Felt. You know, I don't believe Mark Felt was just one person. I think it had to be multiple people. I think that's a lot of people share that same value. But that was the first time that a source was ever confirmed off one, not with a backup source. Usually you need two points of identification or verification there. But we only had one with that one. And it seemed like everybody agreed. And to me, it was just interesting because you saw a lot of independent writers and authors that didn't share the same popular view of the mainstream media or the same agreement with the government that were getting articles published, which makes me hard to criticize those uh, magazines or newspapers, because usually we could say all news is captured. I like that uh, angle, but I'm coming across things where I'm like, wow, that was reported on. Wow. The government kept a document of a headline of this article about J. Edgar Hoover. You know whether they were keeping it because nobody talked trash on the director, but it was just interesting to see media kind of throw a jab or highlight an author that had a different view than the mainstream. Um, I'm not a libertarian, but I, damn if I don't judge our government a little bit. I've seen too many bad things they've done in the past.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, uh, and the Vietnam War, especially with my age group, is a shining example, but. Um, The New York Times, back when it was in its young days, uh, Adolf Ochs, who bought it, an immigrant from Germany, and bought it. And one thing he instituted that became a standard was the idea that news would be on the news pages and opinion would be on the op-ed pages. And so... um, on the op-ed pages, you have the newspaper's editorial, and then you have guest columnists. And yes, the newspapers tend to take a certain uh, lean uh, on their editorial pages, whether it's it's conservative or liberal or or uh, usually there's a distinctive lean, and then they invite columnists to. Uh, not only echo that lean, but to to have the other side. For instance, George Will being in the Washington Post on the on the, the op-ed page, uh, and often they have a conservative writer. and And I I think the Wall Street Journal even will have from time to time a liberal writer uh, to bring out the, bring out the other side. Um, so I think. They make an effort there that the broadcasting uh, has almost never had the same type of, of thing. Um, the closest broadcasting came was, was the point counterpoint types of things. the face off kind of things that uh, 60 minutes would have at the end of their show, for instance. Um, and then that uh, that CNN brought along with the, uh, I forgot the name of the show, uh, with Pat Buchanan and, and some of those people. So I think there is an effort there. But when you sit in the newsrooms and and when you own a paper or an outlet of any kind, even even an even, uh, online outlet now, you have to ask, what do people want to know about? What subjects do they want to know about? Um, and when there's a subject that, that all of a sudden there's a very, very radical view, responsible papers want to know, is that radical view dependable or not? Or are we going to uh, shine light on the radical view and then find out in a month or two that this was a lie, which is going to embarrass us and drive off people relying on us for news? So this is the fine line that, uh, that they walk
0: but also what is the political ramifications for reporting on something that might be true, but that might not be the best thing to be reporting on, whether you're going to get scrutiny from the people you're maybe telling the story about.
1: Yeah. But, but I find, I have found that, that, uh, uh
0: Everyone crapped on Nixon, but I would be afraid of Spiro Agnew. Apparently he was a bulldog.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was. Uh, but, uh, People, people have a uh, people who have media have an have an instinct about them that they uh, they they like a good controversy that uh, stirs debate and and brings more more readers more viewers.
0: What when it comes to the history of broadcasting, who had the biggest impact? I mean, president wise. Obviously, every president has made statements. Um, I'm just curious if you have any in mind that you could think of. It doesn't have to necessarily be just one, but learning more about Kennedy. I mean, I think a lot of what boosted Kennedy's votes was also the fact that he did a lot of television um, appearances, media appearances. He was partially afraid that the press was going to clip things that he said and take it out of place. Um, so I believe that Going on and speaking in front of a public for however long those television segments were were a great way to connect, and I think there is evidence to support that those did boost up some of his results in the polls.
1: Um, we have to go back to the beginning with FDR, and of course he was so smart to uh, begin those bar side chats. But the really interesting thing is, and I don't, off the top of my head, know the number. But he didn't do a lot of those. He only did, I don't know if it was 12 or something, a a, a relatively small number. And and that was key because that way people didn't get tired of hearing him. He didn't get to be kind of -of run-of-the-mill. And that's where Trump made his big mistake with Twitter. He did it too much, and it, it became... Uh, run of the mill. People began to uh, ignore it. In the beginning, no one ignored it, and then he did it so much that they ignored it. So anyway, FDR was very media savvy with with radio, and then uh, Truman became media savvy, and television came along, and Truman knew how to make speeches that uh, that worked really well on television, and. Uh, The TV, care the first convention they carried was with uh, Truman's convention in Philadelphia. Uh, Eisenhower came along and Eisenhower, being a Republican, uh, had a lot of friends who were in the uh, advertising and PR industry. And uh, Rossa Reeves uh, was one of them. And he's the one who took uh, Eisenhower under his wing and developed TV commercials uh, with Eisenhower. Uh, and what Reeves did was he took a camera crew to uh Fifth Avenue in New York and stopped people along the street and asked them what question would you ask Eisenhower and on film they asked the question and then he went to Eisenhower and had Eisenhower film an answer to each of those and intercut them and uh and it was very interesting because uh, you can see h- how crafty it was. Because all of the people who asked a question looked up, and Eisenhower always looked down in giving the answers. So when they were edited together, you had this 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 kind of subliminal message that uh, he was on high and and they were they were lower. Uh, now the interesting thing about Kennedy is that unlike Eisenhower, Kennedy was not afraid to go live on television. Everything with Eisenhower was recorded and everything was edited. Uh, but Kennedy broke through with the live press conferences and, and live television. Uh, and that opened the way, of course, for uh, for Nixon to also, also do that.
0: Yeah, through his presidency, Kennedy did 63 of those live press conference things.
1: Yeah. And uh, then it has been said that uh, those debates with Kennedy, which were certainly live, Uh, influenced the outcome of the debate because Kennedy came across as very self-confident and younger and uh, Nixon less self-confident and uh, uh, circles under his eyes, et cetera, et cetera, and that that played a huge, huge role.
0: So, Have you seen the Nixon and Kennedy debate? I mean, it's pretty clear to me watching visually that just Kennedy looks more comprised and more put together I heard this from a Nixon historian. They said that when there was a poll that came out that interviewed people and took a poll result based on people that watched the debates versus people that listened to them, and the people that listened to them said that Nixon won. Now, there was an issue with the poll just because they didn't – they had a certain – thing added in. They didn't account for something else, from what I was told. But it was because you couldn't see the sweat on Nixon's upper lip. You couldn't see that he didn't want any makeup on him. He was kind of rushing. He was a little bit under the weather, which I think visually, when you see that on TV, Nixon kind of looks like he's falling apart a little bit during the debates. Now, I am a Kennedy fan. I think what Kennedy had to say was amazing. But I'm also trying to take account for the times back then. And that was revolutionary thinking. A lot of people were more about, how are we going to hit the communists? You know and nixon's debate was full of that but i think it was just interesting i don't know if you believe that more people thought nixon won if they listened to the radio compared to if they watched television but i think it's another medium
1: right and and i was going to bring up radio my understanding is that the people who listened to it on radio and were polled had the opposite reaction they leaned toward nixon rather than kennedy so i think that's those two polls are are I think the reason people give the TV such uh, credit
0: for such potency. Have you come across any presidents that made remarks about their own institutions to the media? I can only think of really one example, and it might have changed my way I view him as a president. I don't think we really talk about him that much, but Harry Truman, uh, he made some interesting statements to the press. Uh, throughout his presidency that I just thought was pretty hilarious because we don't really I mean I believe like a military industrial complex like Eisenhower said but when Dag Hammarskjold died He said something that was very interesting and if you know Dag Hammarskjold's death It's been investigated well over ten times and I think the most recent one was in 2015 by the UN Where they had to reexamine it again, but Truman said something to the press and he said he was on the verge of doing something when they killed him. Notice how I said they killed him and the press never followed up with anything on that. And I just thought that's, what did you know, man? Like looking back to a historical lens, I'm like, did what, what is that supposed to mean? It's like Hale Boggs calling out Hoover and Associated Press recorded. You can watch it on YouTube. It's so eerie. It's like, what do these guys know about the behind the scenes stuff?
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I can't imagine when Truman said that, I can't imagine a reporter not following up and saying, what did you mean by that?
0: Oh, I mean, it's it, that's what happened. Nobody asked many more questions on that. They moved on to the next thing, which is just interesting in its own, because then he even gave an op-ed piece to the Washington Post, I want to say it was, about the Central Intelligence Agency. And he said that he believes that from its original start, its creation from the OSS, that they've lost base to what their original mission was. And then it, it, no, like I don't, we don't ever hear about it. It's in the archives. I came across it. But I didn't know Truman was like that as a president. I thought oh, more of those people were people like Kennedy that I think we all publicly know that he made statements against certain organizations. And then maybe Nixon because he was going a little bit crazy towards the end. But I we don't ever hear about Truman. Earth. Have you sure. ever had a president that you had to change your view on just from looking deeper into their presidency?
1: No. Um, well, I guess one example is, uh, and I covered Carter in his last uh, couple of years here, and uh, of course his his defeat was um, laid. In the idea of that uh, attempt to free the hostages in Iran falling falling short, and the soldiers getting killed. And he took a lot of lot of flack for that and and lost the election. Um, but in more recent years, i I have had a an awakening of uh, of carter's uh, Carter's record, which was quite uh, quite outstanding. And and I think he he will be remembered uh, better in history than than he has uh, uh, during
0: his lifetime. Frankly, he's still alive, isn't he? Yes. Yeah, but do you think his popularity is going to go up once he passes away?
1: I th- I think well, I'm not sure. I'd call it popularity. I think recognition of his contribution will be closer to uh, fact
0: than than it is now well what's the public memory of him right now compared to what you've learned that might be a little bit different i only know a few things about carter just when it comes to like jfk files and uh some weird thing about jonestown where harvey milk had written a letter to jimmy carter about that and i was like Look, conspiracies aside, that's just a weird time period, man. There was a lot of stuff that was going on where I was like, I don't know how anybody, whether it's different presidents or not, could even manage functioning with the amount of counterculture and also revolution stuff that was going on.
1: Well, my feeling is that the that the public looks at him mostly as an ineffective president. Um, and I think that's very unfair because he comes from, uh, well, the same area of Georgia I come from. Um, and uh, if, if you have a president who doesn't have a huge ego, they're probably going to come across as being ineffective because we've gotten so used to the, the grandstanding of, you name it, uh, Nixon or uh, to a certain extent Ford when he pardoned uh, people with the Watergate uh, and certainly with Trump, Uh it, if we don't see grandstanding by the president, we we think they're ineffective. And I think that's that's where Carter, Carter falls. I don't think he was the type to uh, holler from left to right, uh, seashore to seashore, uh, holler at people about how important he was.
0: What about criticism of the press? Do you think that has a important role to play in the way that media is depicted or media does its reporting?
1: Sure, um, and the 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 press gets voted on every day, unlike a presidential candidate. <laughs> uh, almost every hour, uh, people uh, people vote vote for their the knobs. They turn on the TV or the radio, or the buttons they push on the on the computer. Um, and yeah, the press needs to listen to the criticism and and weigh it and take it seriously. And if they can rectify a situation, fine. Uh, but I think uh, I think a lot of people don't understand how how the press operates, and that there are limitations. For instance, I think I mentioned to you last time we talk about bias in the press as uh, one thing, and that is political bias. But there are all kinds of things that cause bias. Um, and it could be uh, the fact that uh, that there was no camera at a certain place when when something happened. like today, i I think I mentioned this last time. we've We've got uh, snow falling here in d c, and it will be at the tops of the local newscast, uh, and it may be even be on national news tonight. Uh, we're going to get between two and three inches. <laughs> Now, that's really not news. Two or three inches of snow, who cares? But, but uh, there are camera people here for the networks. There are uh, federal workers who may have trouble getting to or from work and that type of thing. It biases the story toward D.C. getting two or three inches versus some other place that either got two or three inches or, or a lot more snow. And got no coverage, so that's a bias too. Um, so there are various there are various biases. There are also religious biases uh, that that are reflected in news, depending on on the type of story it is. Um, a story about uh, a minority religious organization doing something in America, which is largely a, a Christian nation probably won't get as much attention on the media as, as uh, it would in, in a country that was a majority of that religion. So there, there are lots of biases, um, and it, it's impossible to cure all of them. There are going to be biases uh, just by the nature of the fact that, that news is a, a material—it's uh, it's actually a product— News is a product and the news organizations manufacture the product.
0: Well, you have such extensive work with journalism and also just the history of broadcasting in general. But if we talk about how the public should be accepting media, how would you recommend going about looking at media? I mean Well, I that's
1: the hard thing now. And 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 this is part of my course now, which is fairly new. And we also have courses in media literacy. Um, And that is now the onus is on the consumer to uh, ferret out what is reliable media and and what is not. And it's not just media that we agree with. Um, It needs to be media that is operated in a responsible way that will will tell us both sides uh, and will tell us information we may not want to hear. Uh, I see stories about taxes going up. I don't want to hear that, but I need to. Uh, And the reason I need to is because I voted for those people who are raising the taxes. (laughs) So there's a job for me to decide if I want to return those people to office or not. So the media is informing me, a voter, to help me do my job as a voter. But it takes time to ferret out media, it takes time to do research to find out uh, which organization is, is, is reputable. You know, I and I may have used this last time we talked, but there was a time when it didn't matter which bank you opened an account with, it was going to be the same thing. It was going to be a checking account. And it was going to clear in a certain number of days. The, the fees were essentially the same across all the banks. It really didn't matter which bank you went with. And then deregulation came along in the banking industry, and some banks offered uh, higher fees, lower fees for this and higher fees for that, uh, et cetera. And so it became important for us as consumers to decide which bank met our needs. Well, that put more work on me and more work on you, but it's worth it. The same thing has happened with uh, news. And to a large degree, the internet has deregulated news in that it has brought more freedom to you uh, as a user. But as it, as it has brought more freedom to you, it's brought more responsibility to you uh, so that you don't, you don't want to buy some tainted product uh, on the grocery shelf. We well, don't want to uh, buy a tainted product coming across uh, as news either.
0: I find it difficult. I don't consider myself news or anything, but I find some historical subjects that might a lot of people might not be aware of that if you said something you get the label conspiracy theorist on you. I'm not necessarily a conspiracy theorist. I mean, I've done damn near 1600 of these episodes with various academics and non-academics. But like the thing I mentioned with Harry Truman, that's real. That was told to me by multiple reporters and I got a 60 second clip on it, backing it up with documentation on my YouTube about it. But also Gerald Ford moving Kennedy's back wound up six inches in the final commission report that didn't come out until 20 years after the HSCA's investigation. Say that to someone, people think you're nuts. But then You get all these people. It is known. You can look that up. That will be reported on by various news outlets. But a lot of people don't know that. And saying it makes you sound conspiratorial. It's so hard because there's so much information out there. You can choose what you want to trust and choose what you don't. I'm just surprised we don't engage in the conversation anymore. I mean, it makes me wonder if back then people ever did engage in the conversation.
1: Yeah, well, the important thing you just said was people choose who they trust uh, and who they don't. But so many people today are making their choices based on who they agree with and who they don't, and that's just not an informed citizen. Um, We have to be grownups, and we have to be able to listen to something we don't agree with, uh, and not fear that it's going to influence us, unless it makes sense. Not uh, not fear that we're going to be uh, misled somewhere all of the time but it's difficult in this environment
0: do you think we're close to a turning point in this country when it comes to media reporting do you think there'll ever be a change or a new direction that will get on to maybe a different track that might be necessarily better or do you think this is a good way that we're running
1: uh i i have i have no idea (laughs)
0: <laughs> i like that answer that's a tough question i'm sorry to stick that on you
1: so uh so there's there's me not trying to fool you into thinking that i'm real smart about that i'm not i don't know there there are people today uh in those positions trying to figure out what the heck to do and and the changes are are way beyond what anybody uh imagined uh to give you for instance the um uh, values of the networks, which used to be mountain high, uh, have come way down, way down, uh, because they don't have the influence they had. Uh, they can't monitor behavioral targeting like the internet can. So an advertiser is more likely to go to an internet advertiser than to a major network, for instance. Uh, because they get more information from the internet advertisement about what people want, uh, how people view their product. Well, that means the network can't sell as many ads, and it means they don't have as much income because of that, and it means they can't pay as much to reporters or even actors and actresses. And so when I look at a TV schedule, and um, I see ABC television during prime time, the eight o'clock, nine o'clock and 10 o'clock blocks are all a uh, celebrity-based talent show such as America's Got Talent, I know they've got a problem because that type of show is one of the cheapest to produce as opposed to a drama show. And if you look across the spectrum today, you see so few drama shows now on the major networks. And where have they gone? They've gone to Netflix. They've gone to YouTube. They've gone to uh, Apple TV. That's where the the dramas are. And those are able to do those types of uh, shows because they're subscription. They're not based on advertisement. So they know what their income is going to be, and they know what they can spend on making a show. I mean, it's just to me uh, and Netflix uh, to look at, and I don't know this number. I I should look it up sometime. I can't even imagine how much The Crown cost Netflix, Uh, not only in terms of the stars and actors and actresses that they have, but the, the sets the locations, the cost of it. Um, No network can afford that
0: now. It's weird to see that change. Streaming services, when they first came out, everyone laughed. Like, what are you talking about Netflix? And now it's like, oh, it's a staple.
1: When Netflix went from disc to uh, streaming, we all thought they were out of their minds. Um, But that's, that's where it is today. Now, there are two problems that have come up with that. And I'm telling you all this to show you how difficult it is to make the forecast that you asked me to make. Um, but uh, now, you, ha- you can't have just one streaming service. You have to have two or three or four uh, streaming services, which means you're going to be paying um, a higher and higher price for the streaming service. And at some point, you're going to pay more than you were paying for cable. And people went to streaming to get away from cable and the price of cable. So uh, I, don't, I don't know, and now they're bundling, they're trying to bundle. I have uh, T-Mobile and uh, I have a plan with T-Mobile that includes Netflix. So I'm really glad to have streaming without without even paying streaming amount. It's, it's through my uh, my provider. And I think we'll see more of that. Now, what does that mean in terms of their production? I don't know in the future if they're going to be able to, and I'm talking a long time in the future, if they're going to be able to afford the costs of something like The Crown. But, uh, but for now, the streaming services, uh, Netflix, uh, Sony, uh, even YouTube, are, uh, are where the real quality
0: programs are are found well mr all i appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show about these various subjects i respect your opinion because i think you give it in a really balanced approach and it comes from years of experience and also understanding this topic um is there a place where people can find any of your links i know you have a website but do you have any others or would you just want to say your website one more time for the people out there listening
1: no i have i have just the website it's edward alwood at uh uh You can find you can find it that way, just typing in Edward Alwood.
0: You're the only one around. I'm the (laughs) only
1: It'll it'll come up. My homepage will come up. Yeah.
0: Well, I'll make sure I link that in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.